Welcome, thinkers, to Season 3, Episode 25. Today's topic is mythology. And, as is now usual, I have a quick announcement to make. I'm probably going to be taking a brief holiday in between Seasons 3 and 4 just to have a little bit of time for myself, not have the pressure of editing (laughs) always weighing over me, and just to have a little bit of self-care time. So... If you don't have another episode for a couple of weeks, don't fret. We will be back with season four. And in fact, I already have about 10 episodes recorded of top quality content. So look forward to that. And I will see you on the other side. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. And today I'm joined by Ramji. Thank you ever so much for joining us today, Ramji. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Dunley. Uh, my name's Ramji, and I am a, a dungeon master and a general dog's body for a show called The Fourth Culture. Uh, we are a primarily global stream that focuses and channel that focuses on telling stories from around the world that are really not based on the classical kind of, um, I think some people like to call it Eurocentric myth. I personally prefer to think of it as the the non-Arthurian, non-Norse myth. So we do uh, draw a bit on European culture. We draw quite a lot, quite heavily on Eastern European culture, on many of those stories and myths, as well as, of course, things that are to the uh, east of the Bosphorus, in essence. So stories from Asia Minor, from uh, you know, uh, ancient Persia from the sort of Central Asiatic plain, India, and uh, of course, um, uh, China, Japan, and Southeast Asia, and uh, the sort of the archipelago. Um, so a lot of what we like to do is blend in that mythology. We've been sort of streaming primarily a bunch of shows um, based out of Singapore, but uh, uh, we're having more that are joining our portfolio over the course of the next few months. And a lot of those are... Um, stories that are people speaking from their own cultural voices and so we have for example a uh, a new group of folks from the philippines who will be playing a set of games that are based heavily on philippine mythology and the uh, stories related to the islands that i think is probably a a an introduction and a half uh, back to you i'd say so yeah no thank you very much and of course that would mean that today's topic is mythology. So what does that what does that mean to you in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework? So it's a great question because I think, you know, uh, when we think about the role of mythology and what that actually means, it sounds ever so grand. It sounds like we should be thinking, you know, oh, mythology, that's, uh, that's all this sort of stories of ancient Greek warriors or, you know, um, the first thing that comes to many people's mind, for example, when you say mythology is, is ancient Greece, it's Rome, it's the mm-hmm. Clash of the Titans, it's various stories like that. Maybe it's stories like Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, or uh, the things that Disney has brought to us in its infinite <laughs> rewriting of ancient tales. Underlying it all, I think, is that it's something that's essentially human. Um, when we look at the role of storytelling and how that has basically been a constant for as long as people have been able to gather in communities and communicate in a meaningful way, 
the reality is is the one thing that binds us the one thing that is intrinsically human is our desire to tell stories these stories become myths and legends and stories of ancient heroes and we tend to inject our own sort of uh, cultural mores of the time into those stories that's why some of them can feel incredibly dated that's why some of them can feel you know when you look at them and you look at the original source material they're kind of grim or nasty or, mm. or or any number of things that in today's context make no sense. However, the reality I find is that myths and stories and legends, especially because they tended to be propagated by folks that were moving from community to community, whether that's the same people who'd also carry news, so in essence, like the, the Celtic bards or uh, similar, or whether these were merchants who were traveling along both ancient and you know, relatively modern trade routes, the telling stories as they went, whether that's like by campfire and all the rest, or mm. or just <laughs> as part of the, you know, tell me what's happening else in the world. And, you know, everyone likes to tell a good story, and these stories therefore grow larger. And most importantly, I think the thing is they get, cross-pollinated. And so we see these really rather incredible things where stories that you think you know well and you uh, have heard when you were uh, perhaps growing up as a child as fairy tales and various other things, actually they have their roots perhaps somewhere very far away or perhaps the same story is told in lots of different places mm. but with very different cultural meanings, cultural context, everything else. And there are I mean, a great example is the story of Cinderella, which I think is probably one of those myths that exists in most cultures in one way or another. And the reality of the folks that do folkloristics, which is this entire discipline um, about understanding folktales and mythology and stories and everything else, is that they try to map and understand how all these things relate. And that struck me the first time I came across it, because that means that there's something intrinsically greater about the stories that we tell. Now, in the context of D&D, it's kind of interesting for me because the classical D&D story is you know, very inspired by wargaming and that, that wargaming was very inspired by, mm-hmm. you know, and the tales associated with it, Chainmail and all the rest back in sort of like the late the 70s and early 80s were sort of inspired by those sort of 1930s, 1940s. Uh, adventure stories of like Conan the Barbarian and maybe later with Fafford and the Gary Mouser and all these sort of things where uh, these roguish warrior characters, you know, Conan, whatever. And I know Conan in our mind, iconically, is a uh, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, Oh, yeah. But yeah, of course, right? And so, um, <laughs> and yet in the books, there's something of that sort of like, you know, fantastical... A blend of lots of different stories that kind of got brought together into this sort of semi-colonialist kind of view of this barbarian. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about those stories and then, then the way they got brought into D&D is that, you know, obviously Lord of the Rings, which you can't really avoid even mentioning. I'm surprised we got this far mm-hmm. without mentioning Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, they're very much based, I mean, Lord of the Rings especially, and Tolkien was a a, a scholar um, and, an, and an old English scholar, and he studied Beowulf, right? And so mm. much of Lord of the Rings is pretty much directly from Beowulf. You know, the um, the concept of um, orcs, the concept of many of the other creatures that are inside uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, even the elves for that matter, these are creatures that are actually very distinct 
from the other fairy tales comparatively, right? So however that group of kind of that combination of that sort of boy's own fantasy Conan type stuff plus Lord of the Rings, then just sort of then stuck in um, uh, what is the standard fantasy trope, which is this Mm. combination of a very late Middle Ages plus bits from the Dark Ages plus, you know, a bit from here and a bit from there set in a kind of fantasy Northern Europe that doesn't really exist. Now, I mean, that is 100% amazing. And I grew up with these stories. I love these stories, right? I mean, it's sort of wonderful. And so when they then turned into the law, if you will, of D&D, so the Forgotten Realms law, and, you know, we can talk about that if we like, but honestly, it's so jumbled and broken that um, hot hot take, a hot take, the Forgotten Realms is a mess. But but then you sort of have a very interesting confluence, I would say. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, let's take some of the amazing fantasy authors that, you know, and fantasy stories and fantasy literature obviously has a huge influence in the beginning of D&D. So let's talk about Mm -hmm. the the artifact, Dark Razor. Um, You know, that is a uh, sentient blade uh, that in no way, of course, is just a direct takeout of Elric's weapon from uh, the Michael Moorcock series, right? And, um, (laughs) you know, this sort of melange, this sort of like blending together of all of these tropes then gives, I would say, the stereotypical D&D game a problem in an odd way, which is that mythology is already a big blend of a lot of things, but it's very, very Northern European. It's very much then simplified to take away the intrinsic complexity of the underlying work, right? So there's a mm-hmm. great deal of complexity in Lord of the Rings, as we all know, because there's yeah. books and books and books and prequels and prequels to prequels and sequels to prequels, that, you know, with all the rest, right? And the same is true of um, of Moorcock's work, the same is true of any number of other things. And in order to make it a game, in order to not make it too complex, D&D sort of simplifies it to orcs bad, elves good, and here's the rough lore. And I think that it is one of those things as a dm and growing up with a lot of these stories and really enjoying them and really playing all these things and then reading all the fantasy and the the science fiction and various other stories in parallel that as someone of you know uh i guess say non-european descent although i can tell by my accent i grew up in in sunny croydon so um (laughs) so some of non-european descent i struggle to see myself reflected in that game and then i spoke with other people who struggle to see themselves reflected in that game except in pastiche and i think that is the the, the difficulty of mythology in dnd because although it's got so much richness in one perspective and then you have oriental adventures or you have mm-hmm. alcadim or you have these other it's not even that they're terrible because at the end of the day it's that they're racist Right. And it's sort of, you know, it's it's that like they they massively simplify mythology into a, a, a set of expectations with a particularly Western, sort of Western mm-hmm. European, Northwestern European perspective. And so it's like all the cool stuff. It's like I want katanas and ninjas and I want to have some other things. And then inside those books, by the way, there's all other cool things. There's like other bits of lore and somebody's done some research and they've gone away and they've read some stuff. But it's sort of misses the thing that I would say at the beginning, which is that 
all of these mythological tropes, all of these sort of um, stories actually have echoes and resonances across the entire world. So I'll, I'll finish my TED talk with this, with this sort of like a, uh, with this broader point, which is that... No, you've got 15 minutes left, mate. you oh, got to keep going. Well, I, I can carry on my TED talk. And so, um, but, um, uh, so you take the Chinese sort of post-Buddhist mythology, as in Buddhism came to China, and you have um, a huge overlap with um, stories that are common in India. Right and vice versa, right? Um, and so, when I moved out, I live in Singapore. When I moved out to Southeast Asia, I was stunned to realize. Not obviously, I knew that thing beforehand, but just to realize. Then, by the way, there's this whole area of the world called Southeast Asia where those kind of myths also then have that sort of syncretic relationship, where basically, you know, as various empires have risen and fallen, kingdoms have come and gone, the myths have been left behind in the names of places, in the names of people, in all of the stories that we tell. And so I kind of got obsessed by it. And so we started our game just to kind of say, well, what would it be like to play in a non-Eurocentric world? So let's consciously excise the Arthurian myth Let's excise the kind of like the Wagnerian, you know, Siegfried and the ring and uh, the sort of the um, Ragnarok kind of stories and yeah. take those out. And then what's left and what's left is amazing because basically what's <laughs> left is all of the rest of the cultural richness of the world. And you don't lose the echoes of all of that other wonderful stuff that's kind of underlying it all. I mean, I don't. I don't know. From your perspective, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? So, I don't. Um, I don't presume to know your background, right? Tell me a little bit about, like, what were the stories that you grew up with? What were the kind of the myths and legends and stuff that you got told or you read at bedtime or whatever it is? Sure. So, I'm a bit of a contradiction in terms or whatever the, the phrase is because I'm not a typical fantasy consumer. So, like, my my first experience with Lord of the Rings, for example, was in the cinema back when a ticket cost probably five pounds and not 15 pounds mm. like it does today Funny. <laughs> so like I, I was never a huge book reader and in fact mm. uh, science fiction has always been my preferred kind of, of fiction so yes i was aware growing up tangentially of king arthur and merlin again through disney i believe uh or whatever it was <laughs> sword and stone and yes absolutely yeah, exactly. So, like, I, I, I would watch that. I would have watched that at some point, and that would have been, you know, running around at the back of my head. But otherwise, it is just your regular '90s kid pop culture, <laughs> UK, South UK. Um, so, like, I, I know of and hold highly Terry Pratchett, but I've never mm. read any of that stuff. For example, God, I hope I'm not. Li my listeners are just falling off the cliff now as I. <laughs> As I tell them, I've never listened to or read any of their most favourite things. Um, so, no. So, coming to d and &D, let me think of the way to put this, because it ticked the boxes I would have expected it to tick in terms of the theming. So, it, it was basically, as you've described, like, all the tropes, essentially, which, mm. to, to me, as potentially an ignorant person from from who's only ever lived in Europe, you know, West Europe, that it was what I would have expected it to be, for better and for worse. You mm. know, it, you know, all the all the the main boxes were ticked. But what I mean by that is like it was this middle 
middle earth middle <laughs> medieval middle 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 just fantasy quote unquote that had everything you'd expect it to do now as a dm and a player sometimes that makes me makes it very difficult to run a game because i'm like right. Are there bicycles in this world? I don't know. What are the ramifications <laughs> if I bring in bicycles? How do people tell the time? I don't know. Right. Are there just sundials everywhere? That kind of is is a pain as a DM to be like, mm-hmm. well, you don't know what time it is. I go out and find a sundial. Okay, cool. That, that sucks. <laughs> but I, I want to bring in some more modern items. But then that obviously then starts to tear at the seams of this weirdly crafted mishmash of tropes and and idioms over the last 40 decades the only thing i wanted to add is you were saying like a lot of them and in in a previous episode and a previous guest i had on we talked about monsters and that Mm -hmm. the whole shtick of that episode was like something a monster that you might find benign or you might not be familiar with its roots actually has its roots in pagan mythology from yeah a hundred years ago and you're like oh yeah, i just absolutely. brought that in as a goofy npc doop doop and it's like no that like you might be being like hella <laughs> insensitive and you just don't know because it's got all this this baggage with it so like something like the mummy which is in the dungeon master's guide is obviously mm-hmm. the brendan fraser classic film uh you of know course. there's <laughs> there's 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 more in, in popular culture whereas there's there's a whole bunch out there that have just been filtered through so many lenses that by the time it gets to this mass production mass produced high production piece of 40 pound book that i buy from my local gaming store that it is lost all the nuance and now just becomes the goofy npc or the goofy monster that you no, bring in you, to you, fight you're absolutely right I mean, i'll give you a great example right so the um the classical D ogre Right, and I, I've done, I did a video about this a while ago, but it's sort of uh, the the ogre is is really interesting because if you look at the etymology of it, the ogre, the word ogre comes from like um, sort of probably French. There's a there's a sort of French mm. word ogre, um, but it sort of relates then back to uh, the underlying word for devil or demon or something similar related to that, which is really uh, drives you to the sort of Etruscan word, which is orcus. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Orcus is obviously also, you know, the yep. root of the word orc, unsurprisingly. And it's very unsurprising <laughs> because the both words are found very clearly um in in uh, in Beowulf and therefore Tolkien picks them up, right? And so in but the interesting thing is in in um in Beowulf, um the ogre Grendel, who is like the one of the three. So Beowulf is basically the story about this dude that, um, you know, he's this sort of uh, warrior king eventually. And in essence, it's a lot of blah, blah, blah. But then he fights three people, right? He fights yes. Grendel, he fights Grendel's mother, and then he, I think he fights, I can't remember the but he fights a serpent or a dragon or whatever it is. But, you know, it's been a while. But the, the reality is, is that Grendel himself is this creature that lives in the moors, in the bogs. He sort of lives in the the light, the sort of like the, the underneath the box, he lives in the darkness between that's just beyond the realm of light. And you have to then yeah. think to yourself, well, it must have been yeah, back in those era. You, know, it's not like today where um, you know we've got lights everywhere and you can barely see the stars. Back in those days, lights were rare and expensive, and people lit lights because it was a survival mechanism and it was a way of signaling and it was a way of you know having hearth and telling stories and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it's to keep the the bad things away because if you can see it, the humans unknown. are very sight oriented. And if you can see it, it's all right. If you can't see it, it's oh, it's behind you, right? It's the plot of every yeah. horror movie. 
And I think, you know, so Grendel just being a step into that darkness and being sort of like this sort of creature of darkness, uh, but it's an incredibly powerful one that would eat uh, eat other people. And so you're there going, okay, well, here is this ogre. This is it's complex that has, you know, uh, Grendel's mother, who's who's Beowulf's kind of like second big fight, if you will. Um you know, so there's there's relationships. There's other complexity there. Uh, Grendel speaks. He he doesn't do the classical you know, ogre growling and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and then you know, I'll give you uh, sort of to take that ogre step a bit further. The ogre in the most famous ogre, I would guess, in our folklore, is the one in Puss in Boots, right? So in Puss mm-hmm. in Boots. The the ogre that has the castle is this sort of decadent devil that casts <laughs> magic and has parties and you know it's just a real rake and is meant to be a a satirical character that represents the aristocracy right you know the yeah. uh, like all of the bad things in our yes. society right all of the the nastiness of that that comes with the abuse of power by those um, who uh, aren't responsible like you know so maybe your ogre is called Boris I don't know but the point remains is that you're probably going to cut that aren't you. But um, uh, so, um, <laughs> and so, uh, but nevertheless, um, so so, it's only in D and D, honestly, and it's you know, uh, it's only in D and D really that the ogre is this dumb sort of like mm. uh, and Warcraft and similar kind of derivative things. Yes. So this ogre is this dumb kind of you know, butt scratching, horrible creature. I mean, it's mm. they're always a horrible creature. They're there, but they represent a lot of humanity's fears about. Gluttony, a lot of humanity's fears about misuse of power, of the of the tyranny of strength alone, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that mythological context is super important because a little bit of work to scratch under the surface, and it gives you so much more depth as a DM to play with this idea a little bit. Because the funny thing is, is this idea is in the back of everyone's head. Everyone's heard of Puss in Boots, right? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe people haven't necessarily heard of Beowulf or haven't necessarily got into it. And, you know, they're not that, that, that that's not floating their boat. But everyone's heard of Puss in Boots. You know, everyone's heard of Shrek. Everyone's heard of like, you know, all of these sort of different things. And so it, it, it's a way of um, accessing parts of people's unconscious, right? Because we're all programmed with stories, like from when before we were before we can remember people were yeah. telling us stories people were telling us you know reading us you know, see spot run okay that's great but you know they're reading us other stories too and we were you know, the uh, parties or whatever it is or you know when you're a kid and people tell stories or you know people when you go to bed they'll tell you stories whatever it is you're watching tv you're seeing repeats yeah. star wars is a mythological mm-hmm. story Right, it's a mythological yeah. soap opera. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, George Lucas is quite famed for uh, for um, referring to Joseph Campbell, who was a very famous folklorist, who um, is just incredible, actually. And you know, it's, it's somebody that I uh, probably helped me understand just how amazing and interconnected different um, the, the human experience it genuinely is even by mm-hmm. people that have no reason to know each other have no reason to even like there's no trade right but the reality is that some of these stories are true because again you know everyone's afraid of the darkness because the darkness has things that eat people right mm-hmm. you know everybody seeks you know comfort and shelter right and so there's all these things that and 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 community and so exclusion from community is a huge trope in almost you know in so many of these stories people are mm-hmm. run away from the community or they're taken away from it or they're exiled or otherwise yes. um and and a little bit of just i guess 
understanding and playing with these concepts, I think, adds a richness to certainly my game um, that I'm very glad to have come across. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. It's it's it. They don't they don't tell you that in the Dungeon Master's Guide. They don't <laughs> tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Have another have have read. Here are some. I think that actually tell a lot. I think there are some additional reading material, but Definitely not to right, the extent yeah. that we are, you know, that we're going on today. And that's why, um, that's why people listen to your podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you've done a far better job than I would have been able to do to articulate this this kind of stuff. But I did have, I did have one kind of different vector to take on mm. on today's topic and in your games in your campaigns do you have any like in in game in universe internal myths and, and mythology and yeah. folk tales and all that oh, kind yeah. of stuff what a wonderful question <laughs> what a wonderful question so we did a thing that i before i started this most recent game i was watching matt colville's series on you know how to be a dm and it's a wonderful yep. thing right so in, in one of those games he mentions a, a game called microscope uh, microscope by ben robbins and i thought well, one of the things I wanted to bring to our game, because we were this the first one we were streaming, and what I wanted to do was have it so that um, the players, because it's, we're on video, you know, you're uh, playing a game. Now, if I said to you, the Marie Celeste or the Titanic, like, you know, you, you look over the side of the ship and the fog clears a little bit and you see there's some writing you're looking at it upside down strangely enough as the ship lists off in one particular direction buffeted by the waves you take a moment you you make your perception check or you don't or whatever it is and you see the words hms titanic on the side right like on screen in your brain Everything is going, I know about the Titanic. I know lots about the Titanic. My brain has just been primed. Your your memory is in loads of stuff in it. And you're just like, you're there, you're in the moment, and you're able to talk about it. And so I wanted that experience because, you know, we'd all got together. We played a few games beforehand and we were like, great, you know, let's, let's, um, let's do this stream. It'll be fun, right? And then I realized that we're playing in a homebrew world. And playing in a homebrew world, I, you would lose that. We would end up doing a lot of something I don't really like, which is that sort of sort of explanatory narrative, right? Where you kind of like try and shove loads of law into a yep. moment where like a random NPC crops up and goes, yeah. "Oh yes, well you remember Baldar, the Lord of the Sea? Yes. He was no, no one likes brother. the exposition machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No one loves exposition, right? You know. And so, um, and so as a result. What we did instead was we got together and played Microscope. Um, I've got to dig those videos out at some point and actually put them on our stream because they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're terrible quality because I don't think we'd learn how to uh, edit audio and video back then, but yep. it's a couple of years back. But but barring that, it was really interesting because what we did together was collaboratively play a game where we built the mythology of the world. So we we started off with, you know, uh, the way that um, it's been a couple of years, so excuse me, and I'm sorry, Ben, for if I get this this wrong, uh, as to Ben Robbins, but um, uh, the way <laughs> the game works is that you, there's no DM, there's no orchestrator, each person takes a turn, and um, when everybody's taken a turn, that's the end of the round, and you have three or four rounds, and when somebody takes a turn, uh, when, some, when somebody begins a round, someone gets to define what's happening. They define what the epoch is. They define, like, oh, well, you know, and so you, the, the, the game is bookended by, you could start it at the dawn of all time. And you could say the other bookend is the modern era, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, somebody basically um, says something like, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to do a scene where we uh, are 
on top of a general's tent looking in and you can see that there are four people uh, around a map and then each person that's playing microscope plays one of those people and they just make up that person they make up that entire backstory for that person and then they play that scene out right and as a result what that did was that populated and created the 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 age of myth as it were in my game right mm-hmm. uh, not entirely i didn't include everything one of the, the the deities was called the bread god, and we were like, no, we're not including the bread god. But you know, <laughs> uh, but 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 someone was very hungry at that moment. But yeah. but but the reality is, is that like uh, a lot of those characters, right? Um, uh, Sadar, the Blood Queen, uh, uh, Pythia, uh, various other people like that, uh, were made up by the players in the game, and their backstory and their actions, you know, would be played out. And those mm-hmm. actions, like the, in 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 one case, uh, Pythia, who was um, you know uh, sort of an, an archmage, basically uh, attempted to ascend, and by doing so, she pulled a thousand souls that she'd sacrificed, right? And so she's all set up this whole thing, right? And yeah. so, um, uh, however, it went wrong, and all of that power kind of like you know had nowhere to go, and so instead, it blew up her tower, right? Loads of people died. Usual kind of you know, minor cataclysm yes. type stuff, right? But what was nice was when the players looked at the map I then drew, they saw the ruins of Pythia's tower and mm-hmm. they were like, I know that. I was there. I recognize it. And so when, when I had an NPC just mention it in passing, right, they were like, huh. Or I had another one that where one of the players um, uh, created this character called Manassas who had fallen out with his sister, who was also, again, age of myths, so very powerful beings. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they then had this war, this sort of you know, huge you know, spell battle and everything else. And then at the end of it all, another mountain range destroyed because, you know, if you can't destroy a mountain range as a DM, what good are you, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so what then happened was in one of the games, in one of our sessions, a sailor just swore. He was just like, you know, by Manasseh's left testicle or something like that, mm-hmm. right? And what I loved about that was all of the players, like on screen, on camera, they all blinked recognition, right? And I, I, that was the thing I was hoping for from the beginning, and it was amazing. And so I, I thoroughly recommend it. I think it's a wonderful way of doing it. I mean, I'm sure there are hundreds of other ways of doing it as well. But the concept of, of building your mythology collaboratively within the game and not just pulling it in from external sources. We talked a lot about, you know, isn't it amazing we've got all these cultural sources that you can pull in, and we do, right? And we, we do that mm-hmm. extensively. But then to also have your players and other people around you co-create that mythos because, uh, you know, they're playing a character, but then they're still a person, and that person was actually the person that was involved in that scene, and then you yeah. get that. It creates a complexity and uh, uh, an experience that I think is amazing. How about you? Have you ever done anything like that? Uh, well, no. Now I sound lame. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, mate. Let's try that again. Let's try that again. So uh, I'll, I'll say that. You no, know, no, it's too late. The ship's, the ship's <laughs> sailed. The Titanic's already sunk. The Titanic's already sunk. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, not at all, like, Again, this is an, I, I was saying on a recent show that I was on, I was like, playing D&D is hard. Or let me say, like, the skill barrier that is, like, all over the shop. And, and mm. on the face of it, it's, it is very easy. You pick up some dice, 
people sit around a table, you play, no, have it's fun. It's not very easy at all. It's an incredibly <laughs> inaccessible game. Anyone tells you otherwise is, uh, is pulling <laughs> your leg, mate. It's like, I, 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 I put the, my, my, my wife's a bit like yours, and so, a bit like you in some ways, and that she's, or a bit like your teenage years, and that she'd never really yeah. read any fantasy and all the rest of it, and never read any sci fi either. And so we tried to get this play D, and she was, it just took a lot of effort mm. just to get, mm-hmm. and it's not, 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 not because she's thick. I mean, she's proper smart. It's more a case of like, you know, <laughs> it, it's just, if you've not engaged with it and you're yes. presented with a character sheet, let alone D and D Beyond, right? It's just it's a lot of hard work. It is. And it means it means very little to you as well. <laughs> like, you know, maybe somebody doesn't know the difference between a long bow and a short bow, which I would forgive them for not knowing the difference, despite there being A a mechanical and B a huge flavour difference mm. as well. Mm. So no, the reason I'm saying it that it's hard is because that what you've suggested is like a really fantastic idea and there are ways to emulate that in 5e i'm I'm leveraging that because that's where my experience lies and you Mm. can have a session minus five minus four minus three minus two minus one and the zero and then hit the the start of the campaign where you set up all of those things but when i started my primary campaign only two players have played before Mm. one of which has you know a bit bit more of my senior so he's got a lot of fantasy experience and a couple of the guys didn't have any and they're more like i play call of duty okay right so it's already, as we just discussed, hard to hit the ground mm. running at, mm. at, at session one, let alone we're going to do some mythos of the world. And then, A, oh, yeah. will, will they remember? Will they care? Don't know yet. Don't know the type Absolutely. of players they are. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, it, it's the, 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 the worst option. And, you know, it's not, not, to, not to, to slam DMs that do this. I'm just not one of them, which is the, the ones that hand a ring binder to all their players and say, please mm. do your homework and read 400 pages of, of my world setting and mythology. It's a temptation for all of us, but yeah, there, there, there's a middle ground, which I like to think that I've <laughs> hit in that I did it a, after we'd started, maybe mm. for good, maybe for bad, mm. but more as a, okay, the players actually want something let me pull my finger out and actually make something for them. And it was a page of the real heavy hitters, like, what is magic in this world? Like, yeah, are people awesome. going to run scared or are yeah. they going to cheer and, and, and cry? Um, mm. What are the main few DAs that you can leverage should you need to? Which reminds me, I wanted to loop back around to that, how Forgotten Realms and D&D, quote-unquote D&D is a bit of a mess. And mm. between the crutch that is beyond versus having books of earlier editions and then published material combine that with people just googling things there being very very many unofficial fan wikis that have got again a whole milieu of homebrew things aside main Mm -hmm. things but that Mm -hmm. published thing was from 30 years ago so when my players one of them had to re-roll a new character unfortunately and he's made a paladin and he's trying to find some way, some some higher power that he can subscribe his oath, oath to. And he's like, oh, I've been thinking about this deity. And I'm like, dude, I've never heard of that person before in my life. <laughs> like, where's that come from? Mm. Oh, I found it on this random fan wiki page. I'm like, oh, let me take a look and let me see how introducing this piece of now canon, potentially myth in my world, is going to impact the wider world because where there wasn't churches to this person, now there probably will be. And mm-hmm. th- that that was, you know, I've, I've already provided them six or seven. Um, but of course, you know, player creativity is a beast unto itself. And Well, this is this is where, um, at least in my mind anyway, this is where mythology kind of comes to the rescue again a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. I'll give you a, a, an example, right? So the god of the sun, Apollo, the, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mithras, 
um, you know, various other uh, deities, Surya in Indian mythology, you know, they all are basically the same, you know, yeah. deity who's spread, um, you know, backwards and forwards and kind of syncretically through the Persian Empire and through Greece and through Rome and everything else. And the cult of Mithras even pushed its way up into, you know, in fact, actually, if you look at it, the, the church of Mithras is currently in uh, somewhere in London. It's sort of, it's a ruined building near, um, near the back of, um, in the city of London, in the old city, and, um, and uh, you know, a part of the Freemasons, all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And so, the thing that's nice when people do that kind of stuff in my world because they do it all the time is that it's just another aspect, it's just another avatar, it's another mm -hmm. way that people, you know, rather like the real world, it's another way that people venerate the sun, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can just kind of like go, yeah, cool, that's. That's what that god's called over there, you know. And it's sort of it's mm. it's, it's blatant cheating, right? But it also yeah. allows you to then <laughs> it also then allows you to create some of the the sort of story drift that we see in the real world. Because again, I mentioned Cinderella earlier. So the Cinderella that we're used to is not the same as the Germanic Cinderella. Is not the same as the Chinese Cinderella. Is not the same as the Russian Cinderella. But the story is roughly the same, right? And so you can do the same thing with the deities. You can do the same thing with your heroes, mm. right? So oh, you call him Fred the Destroyer. We refer to him as you know Enoch the the merciful right yeah you know, it's all yeah yeah a matter of perspective sometimes absolutely say, yeah. <laughs> exactly right yeah absolutely now if you had a, a large enough world to support uh that transmission of ideas that I don't because I'm an idiot and can't do geography uh, then that <laughs> that might work but my my islands are well well too small and too close together there's literally like how has that changed so much I can literally see it's like you know <laughs> England to France <laughs> which I guess there would be some but still it's it's yeah I, I envy you for having the common sense of having a small place uh, um, <laughs> I, I, I decided mine was I, I looked up to see well okay well how big how big could you be if you were in the Goldilocks zone and before you fell apart as a planet and I went well you can be that big and so it's huge <laughs> yeah I don't see I, I got I got as far as the planet you're on is in the Goldilocks zone and then right. research done. boom stop close that book <laughs> back to the library you go we're done uh, nice. and uh, <laughs> nice. um and did not do like baby's first map well let me let me have fun mess around and mm. uh yeah needless to say the distances are all screwy and and this that and the other. luckily I don't... but that's all right you know you know it's funny uh, so one of the things i like about map making in general and i know it's just sort of like we're, we're moving away from the subject of mythology but one of the things i like about map making in general is is maps are a story and for the longest time were stories right because mm. people had no like <laughs> longitude hadn't been invented Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people had no real way of measuring the earth and had no real way of doing these things to scale. So maps really were, you know, uh, here, here there be monsters, right? Yeah, so maps there, really there were be just like, yeah. you know, very, very approximate kind of representations of things, unless it was somewhere that was very, very populated and lots of people had spent time doing maps. But even then, like, you know, the Royal Cartography Society sort of like publishes these maps and they're, they're artifacts want a better mm. word right you know especially pre-printing press maps you mm. know if you think about if you were back in those days right you know somebody has drawn this map and you know gone to great trouble to do it well the chances of it being accurate approximately zero yeah right? it's like you know <laughs> yes it's really interesting to see those when people travel they tra like traveled around europe and it's their interpret like just from 
that felt like a thousand kilometers that is mm. in my head a different obviously a different metric at that time but like it, broadly this is this area of the country that i moved in and then you wouldn't literally unrecognizable you would never be able to place that to like our modern day understanding uh of was it Merp? Mer- What's the name for the way we currently use, like a map and an atlas, Mercator? Well, the, or the, like that? the most common one is the Mercator projection. Yes, but, yes. Um, I'm so know, chuffed that I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't some other weird way of measuring numbers or something that has got screwed up in my head. But no, yeah, the Mercator projection, like you'd never unrecognizable if you put the two side by side. It's super interesting to be, and they're, they're trying to, you know, imagine being in that world and trying to plan trade routes or something, and you're like, yeah, it's amazing. Well, hang on a minute, there should be. This says there should be like a mountain range here, and it's the sea here. <laughs> well, which is what I mean. Obviously, that you, you look you look back at the sort of um, uh, ancient sailors and all the rest who made their way, like you know, the ancient Chinese, or you know, mm-hmm. even sort of uh, the Polynesians or whatever who made their way across the Pacific, or they made their way, they navigated their way sort of around the Horn of Africa, or various things like that. It's incredible. Right. Oh, yes, mm. you can hug the coast of the land and keep it on your right and then hope that's going to work <laughs> out for you. But you're kind of limited at that point. Right. Um, the concept of, and obviously people navigated by the stars. That was one of the yes. primary ways of doing it. And so, you know, that kind of helped you because the stars are that, that, that is a much flatter map in the night sky, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're much more available to you, presuming you, you have weather that allows you to do that. But yeah, I think um, I, maps are as much a way of telling a story as words are. And I think that's one of the, when you come back to Lord of the Rings, that's why, you know, there are maps in Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien specifically uh, was very careful to make sure, like he used the maps to make sure that at any particular time in the story, he knew where all the characters were. So if Frodo is supposed to be here, then, mm-hmm. you know, Aragorn is supposed to be there and, you know, uh, Saruman is supposed to be here. And it's it's just a, um, uh, a way of creating a physical relationship between the story characters. And so it's a representation in time as well as in myth. It's, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I If I was to go back now, I would much, much, much prefer... And you'll, I'll tell you why in a second. I'd much prefer to do the map uh, as if it would be one they they found in game. So it would be like mm. you know sepia filtered, and it would be a bit rough around the edges, and there'd just be more land landmarks with no writing on it, maybe because it's just like there's a big thing that I saw in the distance, didn't go near mm. it. Whereas mm. the weird middle ground that I did now, because it's kind of half bird's eye view, half atlas style, half what they would find in the game. I realise that's three halves. But uh, if only doing it that style for the reason is because you can just say, well, the person who wrote the map made a mistake. If yeah. if indeed you need to do some DM fudging at some point, you could be like, oh, well, they just didn't they just didn't go that way. So they didn't see that thing there. Like, get over it. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's real for us because we live in an era of Google Maps, right? Yeah. But, you know, if you, if you uh, uh, grew up before Google Maps, you, uh, you, you had this thing in your car, well, if, you're, if you grew up in the UK anyway, called the A to Z. Right. Yep. And the A to Z is basically a, a map book with an index at the back. And so you had to learn how to read maps. You turn it upside down, you go, which way are we going? And it'd basically be mm-hmm. arguments in the car of like, oh, wait, hang on, no, you turn turn left, oh, back three things ago and all the rest. And so, you know, we even that is inconceivable. The concept of, you know, in, in, in this is where it becomes interesting. So if you think about it, yeah, like a, a medieval city or if not, if not a medieval city, wherever your D&D setting is, your city, right? Mm. How is there a map of your city? 
how do people know to get around if they're if they're not from the city? Yeah. Like even today, if you were to travel to somewhere, I mean, my first trip, I was very lucky. My first trip to Tokyo was in you know two thousand and one. I must have been you know twenty three, maybe younger than that, maybe it was ninety nine, whatever. Right, um, and it's a bit like there's that movie Lost in Translation, right? Which is it does manage to capture just how different showing up in Tokyo and seeing the only things in English are brand signs, mm-hmm. you know, Sony, uh, you know, uh, Philips, uh, whatever it is, right? And everything else is in a language that's foreign to you. And uh, the street signs, uh, certainly for me anyway, uh, not being a native Japanese speaker in any sense of the matter. Yeah. Um, and so um, that sense of being lost, right? That sense of being unable to know where I was going both was very freeing because then I couldn't really go the wrong way because, like, you know, and also Japan is incredibly safe, so I wasn't really worried about anything. But also, uh, but also was 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 fascinating because I, it got me thinking about well, if I was in, if I showed up in some random medieval city and I couldn't read the map, what the hell would I do? You just walk around lots. Just walk mm. around, just trying to find somewhere. And I remember, remember once there was, uh, I was, uh, I had a pair of glasses on at the time, and the screw came out of the glasses, right? And sorry for this very boring story, everybody that's now switching <laughs> off, but you know, the screw came out of the glasses. And I literally was like, the simplest thing in the world you get an, you, you get an optician, you go to the department store, someone finds you in those tiny little annoying screws and those tiny mm-hmm. little, like, you know, unnecessarily small screwdrivers, right? Screwdriver, yeah. Okay, very, very straightforward thing to do. In anywhere else that you speak English, even if you spoke Spanish or French or whatever, I'd be able to muddle along. Yeah. Uh, in 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 Japan, I this very nice passerby stopped and was like, "Ask me in Japanese." Like, yeah, I presume something along the lines of, "You know, are you lost? Do you need help?" Because I was looking yeah. rather distressed at my glasses, and I realized I had no idea what they're saying. But I presume they're being quite nice, still smiling. And then, so I ended up pantomiming, like you know, like some sort of like street clown of like how my glasses <laughs> were broken and yeah. could, you know, screw and like the you know all this kind of people who are listening on the podcast and not able to watch it the red ball is behind the blue ball but i'm like i'm i'm, I'm gesturing <laughs> sort of like yes. you know uh, um, uh to, to, to poor dan lowe who's watching me do this going that's not going to work on the podcast but um but um uh, <laughs> uh but so i'm, I'm like being yeah, sort of doing all this kind of random mime until mm. they finally go oh great and then i realized how the hell are they going to give me directions Yes. <laughs> and so they were very, very lo- lovely. And they actually walked me to a department store Amazing. and they sorted my problem out, which is really lovely. I mean, everyone's fancy nice, but uh, but mm-hmm. but I but it did get me thinking in the back of my head, like if you showed up in the medieval town of like fifty thousand people or a hundred thousand people, and you didn't speak, let's say, let's say you showed up in an orcish city, right? And you are you know, you just speak common. The fuck do you do? Yeah. Right. I mean, like, you know, you, you can't read the maps, you can't communicate with anybody. And, you know, it's like you've, we all kind of gloss over this stuff as DMs because it's hard. Right. Yes. But exactly. It's also, yeah. it's also genuine, it's also authentic. Right. And so, yeah, I think there's a, um, yeah, we've, 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 we sort of, wandered a merry way on this conversation. But I, but I, I, I mean, you've been to Japan. I mean, you, did you have a similar experience? I, I think. I got an anecdote about Seoul when we went to South Korea, but for mm-hmm. Japan, the couple, the couple of times I've, again, I've been fortunate enough to be, I think we were quite lucky in that, obviously, Tokyo, central Tokyo is, in terms of the like metro and, and stuff, they mm-hmm. yeah, now English, at least yeah. have it in English as well. Yeah. So that is actually, despite the vast distance between my home and Tokyo, is 
quite easy to mm. at least use the metro. I tend to not use bus. I don't use buses in the UK to be honest, but because they suck, not because I don't know how to ask for a ticket. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I tend to avoid buses for that reason uh, when when out and about. But the one confusing thing when we went to Tokyo was. Um, Subway, Metro, hunky-dory, fine, crystal clear, color-coded, which is beyond uh, language. Yeah, and yeah. obviously it's all, uh, the voiceover is in English as well. But we went to get a train up to Nikko, which is mm-hmm. like an hour and a bit, two hours north mm-hmm. of, of Tokyo. And that was an exercise in risk, essentially, of getting on the right train. Because that oh, was yeah. like, you need to get this Super Express limited line. Okay, well, that was three descriptors for a train (laughs) super express and limited right okay let me try and find out that one is um and then you've got to change to like a local trunk line and then you've got to change to something else so that was you know basically as soon as you're out the metro metropolitan area it gets a little bit trickier because colors start to fade away and you're not it's all just one uniform color and this that and the other but um when we were in seoul unfortunately i was very poorly for the first three days i just basically couldn't talk because my voice was uh so my, my throat was so sore so my partner I was traveling with she was like let me let me we'll try a we'll try and find a pharmacy okay what's the korean word for that god knows we'll just look for the symbol i suppose right and we did and i'm there i'm looking ill because a i'm jet lagged and b i'm hideously ill anyway and we go inside and she's trying her best to talk to the, the, the doctor behind the counter. She's got her phone out. She's trying to, you know, again, translation. We, we at least we can at least attempt it. Not like in the, you know, the, the setup you gave. And she's like, ah, oh, you know, my boyfriend's ill. And he took one look at me and then in insanely good English, which is like, how long have you had the symptoms? What are you feeling? <laughs> this, that, and the other. And he's, he was an older, an older generation dude as well. So, yeah, yeah, and he was just like, I was like, oh, no. And he's like, have you been sick? And I was just like, no. You know, do you, how do you feel about this? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, these two times a day for the next three days. If you still need them, come back later on. And I was Very just nice. like, thank you, thank you, thank you. So we were expecting <laughs> to go in and have to have this hard-fought battle of like trying to comprehend how to take medication in a different yeah. language. But in the end, he was just like, no, bish, bash, bosh, get out, you're done. Like, couldn't have asked for more. <laughs> there is. There is. A buttload of medication and honeyed, hot honey water for the next two days and I suddenly start to feel myself again. But uh, no, I, I, that is the thing, right? We talk about languages and again, we're, we're I'm going to continue this diversion, but hey, it's my prerogative. Because they have, obviously in D&D, they have this language called common, which is mm. basically a crutch for the, the world builder to say, do you know what, if you want to get away with everybody talking the same language, you can. It's called this language called common because there isn't mm. a more inventive word for it. Uh, feel free to fill in that blank if you want to, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. World Builder. But it does, you know, I've never thought of it until just now as as a crutch because it does take away so much of that world building opportunity for you you just go oh okay one can speak common i guess that's how this world works whereas in reality you, you've lost that you know stranger in a strange land you've lost that how do i c- communicate or talk to these people because there's mainly 99 times out of 100 someone can talk common and in that mm. last one edge case one of the party members can talk the native tongue and i, I do think that's a very That'd be a very, very, very interesting roleplay experience for all the players at the table to be like, this city you found yourself in, it's, if you have to, a completely homebrew, like an extreme homebrew language that isn't in, just to make yeah, sure none of the players have it. Yeah, just absolutely. to be like, you tell me, what do you do? How do you, do you press to digitate? Do you minor illusion the sign for bread? Like maybe mm. they don't eat bread here. What is, maybe bread is something else that, you know, doesn't mean anything to them. Like that, that would be 
hugely interesting as a player. To be like, how do I get over this hurdle? You know, maybe bread has got this weird spiritual meaning to the, <laughs> that, that symbolism is is means something else because of their folklore, their their history. So you go there and you're just immediately insulting these people because <laughs> you don't know what to do. Uh, would be very an interesting conceit. No, I I, I, I fully agree. I mean, we, we've we've played around with it. Uh, and um, on Survey Team Three, which is one of our our, our main shows, we, we play over language a lot. Where because Singapore is is a very multilingual place, right? Mm. So uh, many of our players uh, speak many languages. I speak a couple, right? So um, the goblin player at our table we uh, uses Hokkien, uh, which is a a sort of Chinese language uh, that is from similar to Taiwanese in many ways and sort of is, mm-hmm. is a large sort of proportion of folks that are of Chinese origin in, in Singapore. And is, uh, it, it is one of those languages that is beautiful to swear in. It's just got a certain <laughs> visceral yeah. filthiness to it, right? That like the swear words are just horrible. I'm not even going to repeat okay. any of them, right? And they hey, are... Julie noted, I'll take that some homework for me now. Oh, yeah, but it's good. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, like, I, I like languages you can curse in well. And, like, you know, Hokkien is definitely one of them. It's, you know, it, it, and it has some just amazing idioms as well. So yeah. so um, we often do things where, um, and it, it, it is part of the show, and I know that that sort of is, can, be, can be difficult at times, right? But where one of the players speaks and swears in Hokkien to represent them speaking um, mm-hmm. uh, Goblin. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, some of the other players who also speak Hokkien or whatever, kind of like speak it very badly, as it were, you know, to mm-hmm. represent the fact their characters have learned a little bit of it, but it's not their primary language. And so they're like, ah, oh, um, and then they do it the way that you can, you know, sort of uh, uh, a, 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 a young schoolboy might go, oh, bonjour, uh, je yeah. voudrais uh, un, uh, <laughs> un, un verre d'eau, uh, s'il vous plaît. Uh, um, yeah. You know, and sort of like, you know, kind of that awful sort of stilting yep. French that uh, the, 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 the sort of, yeah, people feel that they can patronize you about. And the same flashing, way, sort of like, flashing that you are a foreigner, like you oh, are absolutely. not a native I think, speaker. I think it's, yeah. one, it, it's, it's wonderful. And so the, the, uh, and another thing we do is that um, so common is not the same from everywhere in my world. And what I mean by that mm. is, uh, if the players move from, and primarily they've mostly hung around in one region in in this game. Though there's another in another game, they're sort of in another area, right? a different set of players from another area. And so common is sort of a um, a, a trade language of mm. convenience. So you, you, the common language between these kind of regions is the kind of equivalent of maybe you know, Chinese would have been, right? Uh, you know, for certain areas around here. And the common language over here is the equivalent of what maybe Malay would have been, right? Mm-hmm. And the common language over there is the equivalent of what maybe English or German or French or Italian would have been, or Latin would have been, or Greek yeah. especially, right? Phoenician. And actually, if you look at the, again, back to like the, the sort of history and mythology and stuff and everything else, if you look at the the the, the, the evolution of languages and, you know, the uh, especially the languages from, you know, the Levant and sort of areas where it's ancient Venetia is and everything else, right? It's the fact that they were traders, that they carried all these words and concepts around, right? It's the mm-hmm. fact that the Greeks were traders and would travel a lot. It's the fact that you know um, that the uh, that the the empires of these people also expanded, right? And those languages got brought with them and were considered those are this is the high language, right? And so you 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 end up with some quite interesting things, right? So uh, uh, to give you an example, right, for a long time, speaking English 
at home or you know, speaking English in, uh, in in society was a sign of education in the mm. sort of in India, right? And so people would speak English because uh, it was a sign of social status, right? So having people use common as a sign of social status is quite interesting, right? You mm. know, you can play with ideas by saying, oh, yeah, no, so, so they, they, they sort of speak a little bit to you in broken common, then turn away and talk to their colleague, you know, in, in language you don't understand, right? And they turn back to you and say, you know, I'm uh, very happy with this, I'm very happy. And, and you know, you have the players make a perception check or an insight check yeah. or whatever, and then it kind of creates these, these additional dynamics, right, yeah, of, yeah. of how deception might work or how some or how someone may play into that and pretend that they don't speak good common. Yes. You know what I mean? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the classic, like, when some people are talking in their native language and they think you don't understand and they're, like, insulting you and you just have to... <laughs> ab- ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of fun things to be to be done there. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, look at this idiot. He doesn't know I'm, I'm taking him for a ride. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> anyway, is that a good deal for you, sir? Like... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like, look, look, look. It's a, a, see that building? I'm sure I've seen that building before. This is a... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know we we could I mean we could talk about this forever because it is such an interesting dynamic and, mm. and deep deep topic. But is there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about that we might have not somehow reached yet? Yeah, I, I want to you know the, the the subject of this is mythology, and it's a strange subject in some ways because it's not directly you know a D and D subject, right? But it's yeah. I think I think part of the sort of the bigger point I want to make is like is that it's so much. Um, the underlying fabric of all of our backgrounds, right? And yeah, I'll give you a good example, right? So um, uh, Greek myth and legend, right? So Odysseus and uh, the Odyssey or the Trojan mm-hmm. War, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the founding of Rome is another myth, right? You know, the sort of the fall of Troy and then, then Aeneas kind of goes to Rome and then you have Rome, you have Romulus and Remus and you have all this kind yes. of stuff and you have the Roman legions. You have all of this cool stuff that's out there. And then it kind of, the funny thing is it kind of then enters into to, to Britain, for example, and you have the, um, the, the, the lost legion. Right, that sort of like you know that we sort of uh, the ninth, I believe it was. Right, you probably read like maybe a school read stories about the the, okay. the the famous sort of eagle of the ninth or whatever, and then it became a whole bunch of stories about like that the lost Roman yeah. yeah, exactly. Right, and so all of these stories kind of are there and they're linked and they're linked by the most wonderful thing, which is humanity. Right, which is that <laughs> that all of us in this unbroken chain from the dawn of time. Right, have created and trodden down all of these kind of like bits of myth and legend, and people will be talking in you know in the metaverse in a thousand years in the whatever the the the, the, <laughs> yep. the, the next hype cycle is after that, right? But you know the 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 the, the tri D metaverse, you know whatever yes. it is, um, you know years to the future they'll be they'll be referring back to you know things that are myths and legends of now, right, and mm-hmm. bringing those into their stories, and I think it's just a um, one, if you're running short on inspiration, Wikipedia, and just go and look at some ancient myths and legends. Go look at the the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Go and mm. actually, you know what? And I'm I'm uh, I'm a long way from being, but <laughs> uh, from pushing this on anybody, right? But go look at the Bible, right? I mean, if you want mm. to go and grab some, like you know, sort of like yeah, uh, some some stories of the the near Middle East, right, that yeah. have got resonance 
that you know these stories because they you slept through RE or you kind of like <laughs> slept through Sunday school or maybe you're observant and you know these stories inside and out. And so if I talk to you the legend of Solomon, you know, you yeah. know what I'm talking about, right? Like these things have got resonance and they're deeply embedded in all of us. And don't just sort of step away from that and go, I must create um an entirely new world and take mm. that burden upon yourself when you have the whole rich tapestry of human history and culture to kind of dig into yeah absolutely absolutely and the one one final thing that hopefully will be as good as that that i wanted to mention and we alluded to it earlier on around how there's you know all around the world we're all playing D&D or TTRPGs and how we met, you mentioned that you know, this, these myths and legends are also known all the way around the world, just perhaps by a different name. And mm. I like, I love the parallel there between TTRPGs and these myths and legends from, from centuries ago, where every, every, every table somewhere will have a myth, a legend from their game that yeah. is, is just as, you know, providing there's a language some, to facilitate it is passable by another game on the other side of the table Absolutely. to be like oh our fighter charged up to the dragon and oh he rolled a natural 20 and he chopped the dragon's head off and we were all doing like that is instantly a legend from your game that is now could be become a myth in somebody else's game Absolutely. on the other side of the pond and it's i Absolutely. just love that yeah that transmission of, of of stories and ideals and one of the, one of the reasons why we we find ourselves talking today for the on, on the basis of the show so I mean, in, yeah, its own, no. in, its own, in its own way i mean you you you, you hit the nail on the head because the greyhawk source book is exactly that right it's sort <laughs> of you know guy x hansen's game right and uh you know uh, um the Taldori book that's yes. on my shelf over here i mean you know not to not to not to mention critical role just for you know shits and giggles but you know that's that's part of the myth and legend that people will mm -hmm. be playing in that world and using sort of you know mercer's world well, okay that's great i mean that's that, that that's amazing right so mm -hmm. uh Tell those stories to other people. It's wonderful. And then let their, let that sort of legend live on. Absolutely. Well, thank you ever so much for that. Is there anything you would like to promote? So uh, very kind of you to offer. Um, I think there's a couple of things I would like to mention. The first is uh, the fourth culture, which is uh, you can find us at t4c.online. Uh, we do all kinds of nonsense. Um, we're currently in the process of actually incorporating T4C Studios, which is a, a much bigger thing where we're pulling together a bunch of streams and we're uh, all going to, uh, uh, kind of, again, focus on D&D um, uh, &D and D&D &D adjacent kind of content, TTRPG adjacent content. So, um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's random nonsense that will be ensuing <laughs> there. But with the idea of also uh, allowing people to tell stories from their own cultures and include them in games. So it's sort of a... a, a uh, very much work in progress, but yeah, you can find us at t4c.online. And I think the uh, the second thing I would like to mention, if at all possible, is uh, that um, it is uh, it, it's very interesting the world we live in right now uh, because everybody is finding reasons to separate and discriminate and say that uh, for good or for bad reasons that they are different and unique and special or that they are different and therefore bad and you know mm. not worthy and D, D is 
an opportunity for people to get together and fight monsters and, you know, bring some light back into the world or whatever it is that you're doing, but do it in a way that is that most ancient of things. You know, it sort of harkens back to sitting around the fire and telling tales together. It's the most, it's the most uniting of things sitting together and telling stories. It's the thing that builds bridges and friendships. And uh, this is a wonderful hobby that we have uh, and a wonderful opportunity that we have to tell each other stories and share them and seek those moments of creating unity, uh, I would say. And so I don't know if I'm plugging anything other than, um, you know, being a a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I can't think of a I can't think of a better thing to to plug. So no, that's <laughs> that's fine. Um, well, all, that, all that's left to say then is thank you ever so much, Ramji. That was a fantastic discussion, a very insightful discussion. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been it's been incredible. It's been a lot of fun to talk. Awesome. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening at home. As usual, all the pertinent links are in the episode description. I would encourage you to check them all out. And while you're there, you can find links to my things that you might want to like or subscribe to. And, you know, what costs? what's the cost of another click? Nothing. So... Unite yeah, with smash me. that like button or whatever it is <laughs> whatever they whatever they say yeah, they can say exactly. nowadays yeah. <laughs> uh yes otherwise thank you everybody for listening and good night and now it's time for the patreon shout outs thank you to robert hartley dm for viva the dirt league and writer on the dnd logic web series i would encourage everybody to check him out at robert hartley gm on twitter and twitch Thank you to Optional Rule, a two-time guest of the show and a very insightful and knowledgeable source of information. Please check them out at www.optionalrule.com. Huge, huge, huge thank you to a great friend of the show, Matthew Perkins, who's out there making hilarious and educational Dungeons & Dragons content. Please go and check out his stuff at matthewperkins.net where you can find links to all of his socials and all of his content, including his own Patreon, which I would very much encourage you to check out. Thank you to Matt Street at MPStreet88 on Twitter for supporting the show. If you need support running your personal or business schedule, head to virtualtimehustle.com or on Instagram to make that difference between should do and done. Boss it better with support from Kat, who will help you get back that essential time you've been searching for. If you would like to support what we do and get four shout-outs a month, head over to patreon.com slash thinkingcritically, or you can just buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thinkingcritically.